careof.com. You know your body. Care of no science. Let's work together to find the right vitamins, protein, and now collagen too. Personalized just for you. Healthy doesn't have to be hard. Careof will make it easy. Just take a quiz. Tell Careof a little about yourself. Careof is good listeners. Good nutrients that work. Get your personalized recommendation backed by science and delivered to you. Stick with long, stick with it long term. Keep the you going by adjusting as your health needs change. A routine tailored to you. Careof will create care for help you create a health plan with vitamin supplements and more that help you feel your best today and support you long term. Careof is with you. Once you have your tailored plan, they'll help you. St- Stick with it, track your supplements, learn about how they work, and get new recommendations as your health changes, all in their handy app. Say hello to your new healthy habit, honest guidance, careful promise to be honest with you. That means they'll show you the research and be transparent about how established it it is. They don't pretend all supplements have equal levels of science, scientific evidence, or traditional history because that isn't the truth, but they will always show their work and tailor your guidance their guidance to you as an individual. Better ingredients. Care of research and development team has traveled the globe so they can provide the most effective bioavailability and sustainable ingredients possible. They're transparent about their supply chain because they know products they want we want to take and then they deliver them straight to your door. SimplySafe.com Whole Home Protection Protection for every window, room, and door against intruders, force, fires, water damage, medical emergencies, and more. All monitors 24-7 by professionals ready to dispatch police. Everything you need to know. Experts choose SimplySafe Home Security because it's named the best home security overall by U.S. News and World Report and awarded by Popular Mechanics and more. Live professional alerts. Sympathetic monitoring staff calls you when trouble is detected and stays with you until it's solved. Dispatch faster with visual verification. Adding visual verification to your monitoring plan lets Sympathetic verify your alarm is real so police can dispatch faster. A lot less expensive. Simply cut out the middleman and mark. Ma- Markup so you get more security for less with no contact. Prepared for the unexpected. Lose power, lose Wi Fi, someone attacks your system. Natural disaster, Simply Safe is ready. Protects against fires and water damage. More than just tor- intruders, Simply Safe's pros monitor against leaks, floods, fires, and more. Keep an eye inside and out. With HD security cameras for indoors and out. See what's happening all the time. Designed to disappear? From the tiny size of SimpliSafe sensors to easy one-touch control means you'll never notice your security system. Detects people, ignores pets. Motion sensors use a precision human form detection algorithm. Compare your security options. Traditional home security, monitoring by professionals, 36-month contract, monitoring costs, Thirty-seven to fifty-three dollars a month. Hardwired needs a landline. Poor rating on Trustpilot. Simply Safe's a better way. Monitored by professionals. No contracts. Wireless. 
no drilling or landline required. Great rating on Trust Pilot. Easy to set up yourself in no time. Here's how it works. Choose your security sensors. SuperSafe will work you through the, exactly what your home needs and ship it to your front door in under a week. Set it up in just a few minutes. No tools needed or let one of, a, of the, their pros do it for you. Sensors, sensors guard all your rooms and entry points. If there's trouble, SuperSafe Monitoring Center will call you and if needed, dispatch authorities. More reasons to choose super safe. Arm, disarm from anywhere. Forgot to arm your system? No need. Need to let someone in? Do it right from your phone anytime. Almost never change your batteries. Batteries last for almost a decade in super safe entry sensors. The best lifespan in the industry. Battery life may vary based on use. Alexa, arm my system. Use your system with Alexa, Google System, August Locks, Apple Watch, and more. Keep an eye on cabinets, safes, and more. Secret alerts, quietly alerts you if someone accesses private areas without sounding an alarm. Customize for your home. Simply customize the right system for your home's needs. Incredible range, many wireless security systems struggle to cover your entire house. Simplicity can cover large homes with ease. Custom alerts for friends and family. Set up text alerts so friends and family stay in the know. Duress pin, if someone forces you to disarm your system, your duress pin will secretly alert the authorities. Meet the station. Booth station. The brains compares the brains comes with a built-in cell connection to wrap the alert. Synthesis Emergency Dispatch Center. Try it, test it, love it, or return it. Test Synthesis in your home for 60 days. Your system arrives ready to work. No drilling or tools needed. If you aren't 100% satisfied, return it for a full refund. Synthesis will even pay return shipping. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for part two. Of U.S. President number 30, Calvin Coolidge. 1924 election. 1924 electoral vote through results. The Republican Convention was held on June 10th to the 12th, 1924, in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland was nominated on the first ballot. The convention nominated Frank Loden of Illinois Force, Illinois, for vice president on the second ballot, but he declined. Former Brigadier General Charles G. Dawes was nominated. On the third ballot and accepted. The Democrats held the convention the next month in New York City. The convention soon deadlocked, and after 103 ballots, the delegates finally agreed on the compromise candidate, John, da John W. Davis, with Charles W. Bryan, nominated for vice president. The Democrats' hopes were void when Robert M. LaFollette, Sr., a Republican senator from Wisconsin, split from the GOP to form a new progressive party. Many believed that the split in the Republican Party, like the one in 1912 would allow a Democrat to win the presidency. After the conventions and the death of his younger son, Calvin Coolidge became withdrawn. He later said that when the, when he, the son, died, the power and glory of the presidency went with him. Even as he mourned, Coolidge ran his standard campaign, not mentioning his opponents by name or mal maligning them, and delivering speeches on his theory of government, including several that were broadcast over the radio. It was a 
most subdued campaign since 1896, partly because of Coolidge's grief, but also because of its naturally one, naturally non-confrontational style. The other candidates campaigned in a more modern fashion, but despite the split in the Republican Party, the results were similar to those of 1920. Coolidge and Dawes won every state outside the South except Wisconsin, Lafayette's home state, Cal. Coolidge won the election with 382 electoral votes and the popular vote by 2.5 million over his opponent's combined total. Industry and Trade It is probable that a press which maintains an intimate touch with the business currents of the nation is likely to be more reliable than it would be if it were to were a stranger to these influences. After all, the chief business of the American people is business. They are profoundly concerned with buying, selling, investing, and prospering in the world. During Coolidge's presidency, the United States experienced a period of rapid economic growth known as the Roaring Twenties. He left the administration's industrial policy in the hands of his activist Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, who energetically used government auspices to promote business efficiency and develop airlines and radio. Coolidge disdained regulation and demonstrated this by appointing commissioners to the Federal Trade Commission and the Interstate Commerce Commission, who did little to restrict the activities of businesses under their jurisdiction. The regulatory state under Coolidge was, as one biographer described it, thin to the point of invisibility. Historian Robert Sobel offers some context of Coolidge's laissez-faire ideology based on the prevailing understanding of federalism during his presidency. As governor of Massachusetts, Coolidge supported wages and hours legislation, opposed child labor, imposed economic controls during World War I, favored safety measures and factors, and even worked Worker representation, worker representation on corporate boards. Did he support these measures while president? No, because in the 1920s, such measures extended the responsibility of the state and local governments. Taxation and government spending. Coolidge adopted the taxation policies of his Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, who advocated scientific taxation, the, no the notion that lowering taxes will increase rather than decrease government receipts. Congress agreed and taxes were reduced in Coolidge's term in addition to federal tax rates. Coolidge proposed reductions in federal expenditures and retiring of the federal debt. Coolidge's ideas were shared by the Republicans in Congress, and in 1924, Congress passed the Revenue Act of 1924, which reduced income tax rates and eliminated all income taxation for, two, for some 2 million people. They reduced taxes again by passing the Revenue Acts of 1926 and 1928, all the while continuing to spend to keep spending down so as to reduce their overall federal debt. By 1927, only the wealthiest 2% of taxpayers paid any federal income tax. Federal spending remained that during Coolidge's administration, allowing one-fourth of the federal debt to be retired in total. State and local governments saw considerable growth, however, surpassing the federal budget in 1927. By 1929, as the Coolidge series of tax rate reductions had Cut their tax rate to 24% on those making over $100,000. The federal government collected more than a billion dollars in income taxes, of which 65% was collected from those making over $100,000. In 1921, when the tax rate on people making over $100,000 a year was 73%, the federal government collected a little over $7 million in income taxes, of which 30% was paid by those making over $100,000. Opposition to Farm Subsidies Perhaps the most contentious issue of Coolidge's presidency was relief for farmers. Some in Congress proposed a bill designed to file, fight falling agricultural prices by allowing the federal government to purchase drops to sell 
Todd at Laura Prizes, Agriculture Secretary Henry C. Walls, and other administration officials favored the bill when it was introduced in 1924, but rising prices convinced many in Congress that the bill was unnecessary, and it was defeated just before the elections that year. In 1926, with farm prices falling once more, Senator Charles L. McNary and Representative Gilbert L. N. Hagen both revived the proposal to McNary Hogan Farm Relief Bill. The bill proposed a federal farm board and that would purchase surplus production in high yield years and hold it when feasible for later sale or for later sale or sell it abroad. Coolidge opposed McNary Hogan, declaring that agriculture must stand on an independent business basis and said that government control cannot be divorced from political control. Instead of municipal prices, he favored instead Hoover Hoover's proposal to increase profitability by modernized agriculture. For modernizing agriculture, Secretary Mellon wrote a letter denouncing that McNary Hogan measure as unsound and likely to cause inflation, and it was defeated. After McNary Hogan's defeat, Coolidge supported a less radical measure, the Curtis Crisp Act, which would have created a federal board to lend money to farm cooperatives in times of surplus. The bill did not pass. In February 1927, Congress took upon the McNary Hogan bill again, this time nearly passing it, and Coolidge will vetoed it in his veto message. He expressed the belief that the bill would do nothing to help farmers, benefiting only exporters and expanding the federal bureaucracy. Congress did not override the veto, but it passed the bill again in May 1928 and by an increased majority. Again, Coolidge vetoed it. Farmers, farmers never had made much money, said Coolidge. The, farmer, the Vermont farmer's son, I do not believe we can do much about it. Flood Control Coolidge was, has often been criticized for his actions during the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, the worst natural disaster to hit the Gulf Coast until Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Although he did eventually name Secretary Hoover to a, com to a commission in charge of flood relief, scholars argue that Coolidge overall showed a lack of interest in federal flood control. Coolidge did not believe that personally visiting the region after the flood would accomplish anything and that it would be seen as mere political grandstanding. He also did not want to incur the federal spending that flood control would require. He believed populists should bear much of the cost. On the other hand, Congress wanted a bill that would place the federal government completely in charge of flood mitigation. When Congress passed a compromise measure in 1928, Coolidge declined to take credit for it and signed the bill in private on May 15th. Civil Rights According to one biographer, Coolidge was devoid of racial prejudice but rarely took a lead on civil rights. Coolidge disliked the Ku Klux Klan and no Klan man is known to have received an appointment from him in 1924. In the 1924 presidential elections, as opposed Robert LaFollette and John Davis and his running mate Charles Dawes often attacked the Klan, but Coolidge avoided the subject. Coolidge spoke in favor of the civil rights of African Americans, saying in his first state of the Union address that their rights were just as sacred as those of any other citizen under the U.S. Constitution and that it was a public and private duty to protect, to protect those rights. Coolidge repeatedly called for laws to make lynching a federal crime. It was already a state crime, though not always enforced. St Congress refused to pass any such legislation on, Ju on June 2, 1924. Coolidge signed the Indian Citizens Act, which granted U.S. citizens when all American Indians living on reservations. Those off-reservations had long been citizens. On June 6, 1924, Coolidge delivered a commencement addressing a commencement address at the at historically black, non-segregated non Howard University, in which he thanked and commended African Americans for their rapid advances in education and their contributions to U.S. society over the years, as well as their eagerness to render, eagerness to render their services as soldiers in the World War, all while being faced with discrimination and prejudice 
prejudices at home. In a speech on October 24, Coolidge stressed tolerance of differences as an American value and thanked immigrants for their contributions to U.S. society, saying that they have contributed much to making our country what it is. He stated that although the diversity of peoples was a detrimental source of conflict and tension in Europe, it was peculiar for the United States that it was a harmonious benefit for the country. Coolidge further stated that the United States should assist and help immigrants who come to the country and urged immigrants to reject hatred, race, hatred, and urged immigrants to reject race, hatreds, and prejudices. Foreign Policy Coolidge was neither well-versed in nor very Interested in world affairs, his focus was directed mainly at American business, especially pertaining to trade and maintaining the status quo. Although not an isolationist, he was elected to enter the for- enter into foreign alliances, while Coolidge believed strongly in a non-interventionist foreign policy. He did believe that America was exceptional. Coolidge accepted 1920 Republican victory as a rejection of the Wilsonian position that the United States should join the League of Nations. While not completely opposed to the idea, Coolidge believed the League as then constituted, did not serve American interests, and he did not advocate U.S. U.S. membership. He spoke in favor of the United States joining the Permanent Court of International Justice, World Court, provided that the nation would not be bound by advisory decisions. In 1926, the Senate Senate eventually approved joining the court with reservations. The League of Nations accepted reservation, but it suggested some modifications of its own. The Senate failed to act, and so the United States did not join the World Court. Coolidge authorized the Dawes Plan, a financial plan by Charles Dawes, provide Germany partial relief from his reparations obligations from World War I. The plan initially provided stimulus for the German economy. Additionally, Coolidge attempted to pursue further curbs to naval strength following the earlier successes of Harding's Washington Naval Conference by sponsoring the Geneva Naval Conference in 1927, which failed owing to a French and Italian boycott and the ultimate failure of Great Britain and the United States to agree on cruiser tonnages. As a result, the conference was a failure and Congress eventually authorized for increased American naval spending in 1928. The Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, named for Coolidge, Secretary of State Frank B. Kellogg and French Foreign Minister Aristide Briand, was also a key peacekeeping initiative. The treaty ratified in 1929 committed signatories the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan to renounce war as an instrument of, in, of national policy in their relations with one another. The treaty did not achieve its intended result, the, outlaw, the outlawry of war, but it did provide the founding principle for international law after World War II. Coolidge has also continued the previous administration's policy of withholding recognition of the Soviet Union. Efforts were made to normalize ties with post-revolution Mexico. Coolidge recognized Mexico's new government under Alvaro Obregón and Plutarco Elias Calles, or Calles and continued American support for the election for the elected Mexican government against the National League for the Defense of Religious Liberty during the Cristero, Cristero, Cristero War. Lifted the arms embargo on that country, he also appointed Dwight Morrow as ambassador to Mexico with a successful objective to avoid further American conflicts with Mexico. 
Coolidge's administration would see continuity in the occupation of Nicaragua and Haiti and an end to the occupation of the Dominican Republic in 1924 as a result of the withdrawal agreements finalized during Harding's administration. In 1925, Coolidge ordered the withdrawal of Marines stationed in Nicaragua following perceived stability after the 1920 Nicaraguan general election but redeployed them there in January 1927 following failed attempts to peacefully resolve the rapid deterioration of political stability and avert the ensuing constitutionalist war. Henry L. Stimson was later sent by Coolidge to mediate a peace deal that would end the Civil War and extend American military presence in Nicaragua beyond Coolidge's term in office. To extend an olive branch to Latin American leaders and bid it over America's interventionist policies in Central America and the Caribbean, Coolidge led the U.S. delegation to the 6th International Conference of American States, January 15th to 17th, 1920, in Havana, Cuba, the only international trip Coolidge made during his presidency. He would be the last sitting American president to visit Cuba until Barack Obama in 2016. For Canada, Coolidge authorized the St. Lawrence Seaway, a system of locks and canals that would provide large vessels passage between the Atlantic Ocean and the Great Lakes. Cabinet. Although a few of Harding's cabinet appointees were scandal-tarred, Coolidge initially retained all of them by an ardent, ardent conviction that a successor to a deceased elected president, he was obligated to retain Harding's counselors and policy until the next election. He kept Harding's able speechwriter Judson T. Wallover, Stuart Crawford replaced Wallover in November 1925. Coolidge appointed C. Bascom Slimp, a Virginia congressman and a Spanish federal politician, to work jointly with Edward T. Clark, a Massachusetts Republican organizer whom he retained from his vice presidential staff as secretaries to the president, a position equivalent to the modern White House chief of staff. Perhaps the most powerful person included his cabinet was Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon, who controlled the administration's financial policies that was regarded by many, including House Minority Leader John Nance Garner, as more powerful than Coolidge himself. Secretary of Commerce Herbert, Herbert Hoover also held a prominent place in Coolidge's cabinet, in part because Coolidge found value in Hoover's, Hoover's ability to win positive publicity with his pro-business proposal. Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes directed Coolidge's foreign policy until he resigned in 1925. Following Coolidge's re-election, he was replaced by Frank B. Kellogg, who had previously served as a senator and as an ambassador to Great Britain. Coolidge made two other appointments following his re-election with William M. Jardine, taking the position of Secretary of Agriculture and John G. Sargent becoming Attorney General. Coolidge did not have a Vice President during his first term, but Charles Dawes became Vice President during Coolidge's second term, and Dawes and Coolidge clashed over foreign policy and other issues. Judicial Appointments Coolidge appointed Harlem F. Stone first as Attorney General and then as a Supreme Court Justice. Coolidge appointed one Justice to the Supreme Court of the United States, Harlem F. Stone, in 1925. Stone was Coolidge's fellow Amherst alumnus, a Wall Street lawyer and conservative Republican. Stone was serving as Dean of Columbia Law School when Coolidge appointed him to be the Attorney General in 1924 to restore the repetition tarnished by Harding's Attorney General, Harry M. Dougherty. It does not appear that Coolidge accepted the appointment appointing anyone other than Stone, although Stone himself had urged Coolidge to appoint Benjamin Cardoso. Stone proved to be a firm believer in judicial restraint and was regarded as one of the of course, three liberal justices who would often vote to uphold New Deal legislation, President Franklin D. Roosevelt would later appoint a stone to be Chief Justice. 
Collision number 70 judges to the United States Courts of Appeals and 61 judges to the United States District Courts. He appointed judges to various specialty courts as well, including Genevieve R. Klein, who became the first woman named to the federal judiciary when Coolidge placed her on the United States Customs Courts in 1928. Coolidge also signed the Judiciary Act of 1925 into law, allowing the Supreme Court more discretion over its workload. 1928 election. In the summer of 1927, Coolidge vacationed in the Black Hills of South Dakota, where he engaged in horseback riding and fly fishing and attended rodeos. He made Custer State Park his summer White House. While on vacation, Coolidge surprisingly issued a terse statement that he would not seek a second full term as president. I do not choose to run for president in 1928. After allowing the reporters to take that in, Coolidge elaborated, if I take another turn, I'll be in the White House since 1933. Ten years in Washington is longer than the other man has had it too long. In his memoirs, Coolidge explains his decision not to run the presidential office takes a heavy toll on those who occupy it and those who are who are dear to them. While he should not refuse to spend to spend and be spent in these in the service of our country, it is has to attempt what we feel is beyond our strength to accomplish. After leaving office, he and Grace returned to Northampton, where he wrote his memoirs. The Republicans retained the White House in 1928 and with the landslide by Hubert Hoover. Coolidge had been elected to endorse Hoover as his successor. On one occasion, he remarked that for six years, that man has given me unsolicited advice, all of it bad. Even so, Coolidge had decided to split the party by publicly opposing the nomination of the popular commerce secretary. Retirement and death. After his presidency, Coolidge retired to a modest rented house on residential Massoit Street in Northampton before moving to a more spacious home, the Beaches. He kept a hacker runabout boat on the Connecticut River and was often observed on the water by local boating enthusiasts. During this period, he also served as the chairman of the Nonpartisan Railroad Commission, an entity created by several banks and corporations to serve the country's long-term transportation needs and make recommendations for improvements. He was an honorary president of the American Foundation for the Blind, a director of New York Life Insurance Company, president of the American Antiquarian Society, and trustee of Amherst College. Coolidge published his autobiography in 1929 and wrote a syndicate, syndicated newspaper column, Cavalry Coolidge's status from 1930 to 1931, faced a slimming defeat in the 1932 presidential election. Some of the spoke of rejecting Hubert Hoover as our party's nominee and instead directed Coolidge to run, but the former president made it clear that he was not interested in running again and that he would publicly repudiate any effort to draft him should it come about. However, Hoover Hoover was renominated and Coolidge made several radio addresses in support of him. Hoover then lost the general election to Coolidge's 1920 vice presidential Democratic opponent Franklin D. Roosevelt in a landslide. Coolidge died suddenly from coronary thrombosis at the beaches. At 12.45 p.m. January 5, 1933, shortly before his death, Coolidge confided to an old friend, I feel I no longer fit in with, with these times. Coolidge is buried at Plymouth Notch Cemetery, Plymouth Notch, Vermont. The nearby family home is maintained as one of the original buildings on the Calvin Coolidge Homestead District site. The state of Vermont dedicated a new visitor center there, nearby to mark Coolidge's 100th birthday on July 4, 1972. Radio film and commentaries. Despite his reputation as a quiet and even reclusive politician, Coolidge made use of the new medium of radio and made radio history several times while president. He made himself available to reporters, giving 520 press conferences, meeting with reporters more regularly than any president before or since. 
Kuljus second inauguration was the first presidential inauguration broadcast on radio on December 6, 1923. His speech to Congress was broadcast on radio, the first presidential radio address. Kuljus signed the Radio Act of 1927, which assigned regulation of radio to the newly created Federal Radio Commission on August 11, 1924. Theodore W. Case uses the phonofilm sound on film process. He developed the Lee, For- Lee DeForest film, film the Coolidge on the White House lawn, make a silent cow the first president to appear in the sound film. The title of the DeForest film was President Coolidge Taken on the White House Grounds. When Charles Lindbergh arrived at Washington on a U.S. Navy ship after celebrating 1920 the Transatlantic flight, President Coolidge welcomed him back to the U.S. and presented him with the Congressional Medal of Honor. The event was captured on film. Coolidge was the only president to have his portrait on the coin during his lifetime. The sequestrated of American independence half dollar minted in 1926. Notes. Coolidge was vice president under Warren G. Harding and became president upon Harding's death <coughs> on, August in, on August 2, 1923, as was as this was prior to the adoption of the 25th Amendment in 1967. A vacancy of the office of vice president was not filled until the next ensuing election and inauguration. The exact total of, was 1,000. 117 out of 1,544. The tally was Coolidge, 317,704. Long, 192,673. Thank you for listening to the second part in U.S. President number 30, Calvin Coolidge. Stay tuned next week for U.S. President number 31, Herbert Hoover. As we look forward to a normalcy now that the vaccines are out. If that can ever happen, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And as always, stay safe and thank you for listening.